They invented all sorts of radio drama conventions that we now take for granted. And they came up with the idea of syndication, allowing individual stations to broadcast the show without being tied to the network. Now, don't forget, Andy, you promised me this morning, you know, that you'd be with me for Christmas dinner. Yeah, well, that show is nice of you. Well, I gotta get going, son. I gotta drop in on two, three people, say hello to them. Yeah, well, look here. See you over at the Kingfish's house then. Yeah, all right. Well, see you later, Amos. So long, Andy. But the most bizarre thing about them, something that today would be unthinkable, was that Amos and Andy two black characters, were created by, written by, and played by Freeman Gosden and Charles Carell, who were two white guys. No, today that would be politically incorrect and would raise serious, well-founded objections. But back in the 1930s, people weren't as vocal about it as we are today. Sure, this was an era of racism and oppression, and yet those two black characters were welcomed guests in America's living rooms. On one hand, maybe it had to do with the fact that they weren't actually living next door. On the other, well, they were everybody's friends. Elizabeth McLeod is the biographer of Amos and Andy. Radio had become a much bigger business in 1940 than it had been in 1930. And a small, little, quiet, low-key program like Amos and Andy had been during the early 30s was less and less able to fit into the mood of what radio was in the early 1940s. Serialization itself had become contentious during the war years. Radio historian Michelle Hilmes. The soap operas became a very socially suspect form. They were a waste of radio time. They were overly commercialized. They were leading susceptible people, especially women, to perhaps hold hysterical views about the war. There weren't too many serialized primetime or even sort of prime fringe shows like Amos and Andy was at that time still existing. Amos and Andy went to being the kind of primetime program that was being promoted in the mid-40s and would become popular later, which is what we think of today as a sitcom. The Campbell Soup Company, which was uh, Amos and Andy's sponsor from 1938 forward, wanted the show to change with the times, and they pressured Carell and Gosden for a good two and a half years to update their format. They wanted the loud, the bombastic, the, the big studio audience-type programs, the Bob Hope paradigm. In the end, it was the ratings that forced them to change, even though they knew that a weekly sitcom format would mean they were losing control of their creation. They were going to have to deal with advertising people telling them what they wanted. They were going to have to deal with all these different pressures that they didn't have, and they didn't want to do that. Amos and Andy had been the top program at 7 p.m. continuously since 1929 until 1941, when the rating uh, was surpassed in that time slot by uh, Fred Waring's musical program. Wartime reality intervened. Campbell's had to cut its production in half because of a shortage of tin, so they cut their sponsorship, too. Carell and Gosden now thought about retirement, except that the nation still wanted to listen to Amos and Andy, so retirement was simply not an option. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Here is the Amos and Andy Show with their guest tonight, Miss Ethel Waters. 
No longer just called Amos and Andy, it was now the Amos and Andy Show, bigger and brasher. And according to Rich Carell, Charles Carell's son, it was just what America wanted. It was the number one thing on radio for almost four years. Then it went down kind of into the top ten. Then it went down even a little bit further than that. And it was hovering in around the 20s. And then resurfaced in a whole new format, which was in 1943 with the uh, half-hour show that then went back into the top five. Although the new format inherited settings and characters from the serial, the style is very different. According to Damon Fordham, professor of African-American studies at the College of Charleston, instead of just having these whole routines done rather brilliantly, I might add, by, by Freeman Gustin and Charles Carell by themselves in the radio studio, they had actual African-American comedians to flesh out the rest of the cast. They had, a couple, they had several African-American singing groups, such as the Jubilees and the Four Nights, to provide musical interludes and such. And so they had the audience to provide the crowd reaction along with sound effects. And so the program was almost like a modern television program minus pictures. Andy, you know what day this is? Certainly, Amos. It's Tuesday. That's right, and Tuesday means we got to go to work for Rinso. Yes, sir, Rinso. The soap that gets clothes Rinso White and Rinso Bright brings you the Amos and Andy Show with... I'm Gabby Gibson. Yes, I'm Gabby Gibson. This is Shorty. Uh, Shorty the Barber. Patty McDaniel as Sadie Simpson. Lud Gluskin and his orchestra. Now the makers of Rinso invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the story of Amos and Anthony. Big treatment, big cast, big stars. Yes, that was the Hattie McDaniels from Gone with the Wind. Although the show now only aired once a week, Carell and Gosden hired a writer. Eventually, they had to hire a whole team of writers because their kind of humor, the stuff they'd been doing for 15 years, wasn't about jokes, and now they needed gags. For them, it was a very different way of working from the old days. My dad said that they would get together at noon every day, knowing they had the broadcast live at 7 p.m. and 10 p.m for the different time belts for East and West. And he said if they couldn't come up with any ideas by like 1 or 1.30, they would like break out some like uh, Jack Daniels and JB, you know, and start nipping a little bit. And he said that a lot of the episodes were written by bottles of Jack Daniels. <laughs> the new weekly show concentrated on the more outrageous characters, like the Kingfish and Lightning. This at the expense of that rich tapestry of the serial, and also at the expense of Amos and Andy themselves. Instead of leading the storylines, they became the victims of the Kingfish's schemes. Well, just like I say, Andy, this friend of mine says that this is a real $1,000 bill. Yeah. I tell you, Brother Andy, you're making a big mistake if you put an ad in the newspaper. I is, huh? Oh, Kingfish, what is you talking about? It's the only right thing for Andy to do is to put an ad in the lost and found column and at least try to find the person that lost the money. Then his conscience is clear, and he ain't going to get in no trouble. Yeah, I got to agree with Amos on that. Well, now, wait a minute, Chanda. Amos ain't reciting all the facts. I was thinking of you, partner, dear. 
Hmm, you is, huh? <laughs> yeah, now suppose, uh, suppose you put an ad in the paper. Cost you about $8. Then the man come, claim the money, and then he refuses to pay for the ad, and you was out $8. Yeah, I never thought of that. Now, wait a minute, Joe. On top of that, this man is liable to claim that when he lost a $1,000 bill, it was in a genuine leather wallet. And he wants you to pay for that, too. That's what they do. Yeah, you know he is, without a doubt, the cheapest guy in the whole world. <laughs> Against the odds, the transformation worked. It was still very popular, but of course you didn't have the same things happening where you had people not using their toilets when the show was on like you had in the 30s or the movies stopping in the movie theaters to broadcast it. Of course it wasn't to that level, but it had pretty much become somewhat of an American institution by the 1940s. Sort of like Bill Cosby is today in this country. And uh, my wife. What? She's done it. She told me last night that she was going to do something and I'd be sorry for She left the house around 7.30 and she didn't get back till 10. Well, what about it? That store was robbed at 9 o'clock. And Amos said it was robbed of around $300. Oh, yeah. Kingfish, what are you going to do? Oh, me, what'll I do? I'm going to take this money so she can't spend it. Anna, do you realize what this means? What? Sapphire, my own wife, is guilty of petty lottery. <laughs> oh, yeah, Kingfish, your wife has got you in trouble. Why did I ever marry that woman? I ought to took the advice of my folks to give me years ago. You know, Andy, my mama done told me... Sounds like a cue for a song. When I was a knee pain, my mama done told me... Said she, son, a one little sweet dog... And give you the big eyes. But when the sweet talk is done, a woman's a two-faced. You're so right. A worrisome thing who'll leave you to sing the blues. The blues in the night. Right. For Americans sitting around their radios, this was no longer the real world of two struggling black guys. This was a radio world. Now there was a noisy audience that came between Amos and Andy and the rest of the nation. And in this radio world, there were new and ever-increasing pressures. Elizabeth McLeod. Yep, my mama done told me. Radio in the mid-40s was, was very dependent on jokes. Number crunching was very important. Advertising agencies would sit down in their offices and they would calculate the exact number of laughs per minute. Punchlines and setups and jokes and punchlines and setups and jokes. Bang, bang, bang. It completely changed the rhythm of the program. Inevitably, the characters became more extreme. They became caricatures of themselves, and the storylines became formula plots. Adding to the pressures in the years after the war, radio stopped being the only game in town. What was it that Damon Fordham said? The program was almost like a modern television program minus pictures. That's right. And as radio changed to compete with television, Carell and Gosden started wondering about putting Amos and Andy on the little screen. They approached it with some trepidation because they'd already taken a shot at the big screen back in 1930 with a very forgettable movie called Check and Double Check. They were signed in the summer of 1930 uh, to a very substantial contract by RKO Radio Pictures to make a feature-length film. RKO decided, well, look, What's a better shot than to take the two most famous voices in the country and put them in a movie? They had to black up Corell and Gosden to do that, and Corell and Gosden were fine with that. Which turned out to be a debacle on every level except at the box office, where it was the biggest hit RKO had in 1930. 
I personally like that image of Amos Nanny, but I'm looking at my father. It's like when I watch it, I visit my father again, you know, in blackface. Amos, as president of the Fresh Air Taxi Cab Company, I'm telling you to get behind this thing and push it out of here. I ain't gonna do it. Let me at that thing. I'll fix it. Creatively, it was a disaster because Carell and Gosden had no control over it. Uh, they were given a very bad script. They were not directed well. The picture just didn't work flat out from a creative point of view, and Gosden especially knew this. And the problem was, listeners visualized Amos and Andy in a certain way. And however they visualized them, they visualized them as real African Americans, not as two white guys in black makeup. It didn't have a lot of holdover power. In other words, audiences didn't go back to see it again. Perhaps that's because, as Elizabeth McLeod says, the white guys blacking up thing wasn't what audiences had in their minds. The guys on the big screen just didn't look like the friends who came into America's living rooms on the radio. If check and double check is remembered at all today, and with most real movie buffs it isn't, that's because the Duke Ellington band are heavily featured. But as Rich Carell notes, even the band suffered the indignity of the makeup sponge. Several of those guys had to be blacked up, so they were all looking, they would all photograph having the same skin tone, and yet some of them were very light and they had to black them up. And no one thought anything about it. See, another thing that people might think is racist about that movie is every single black person who speaks in that film is a white person blacked up. To keep in the spirit of Amos and Annie was a minstrel show on radio. So they made a minstrel show out of the movie. Without getting into the minstrel argument, there's no doubt that black and white identity is at the heart of what happened 20 years later when the show made its way onto television. CBS bought out Amos and Andy. They had these big plans to take some of their radio stars and move them into television, and Amos and Andy being in the top ten was one of the main candidates for that. So they bought out Carell and Gosden, they bought out the Amos and Andy name, and then they decided, now that we've got everything, we've got them back on CBS, the radio show is still you know, hot and rolling. So let's figure out how we can transfer Amos and Andy to television. CBS paid $2.5 million for the program, all of its assets, and Carl and Gosden's services as performers. And at that, from that point forward, CBS owned and ran the program. And there was no way that CBS could allow two white guys to black up. So for the very first time on American television, a network had to go in search of black actors. Basically, they did end up with three guys who had show business backgrounds. Um, none of them were really unknowns. Spencer Williams was a guy that had been in movies for a long time, not only as an actor, but also as a director. He directed a lot of black westerns and a few comedies. And Alvin Childress, who played Amos, was a very light-skinned black guy. As a matter of fact, they had to make him up darker to play Amos in the TV show. And they needed a kingfish. And that was the hardest part to cast because it was a very pivotal role for the program and the quality of the kingfish would make or break the series. So they tested everybody that you could think of. They tested Cab Calloway. They tested Sammy Davis Jr., who was a very young man at the time. And he was much too young to play the kingfish, but he could do the voice. They tested uh, Jimmy Rushing, who was a singer with Count Basie's orchestra, Mr. Five by Five. I knew Cab Calloway when I was a kid in New York, and he would have been a great kingfish. What with his big eyes and big teeth smile. But Cab, who had his vanities, wouldn't let them fix his hair. So they had to find someone else. Tim Moore was an old school comedian 
who had been a star in vaudeville, in black vaudeville, back in the 1910s. He had done just about everything that you could do in show business if you were an African-American comedian. And they went all over the country looking for him, and they finally found him in Rock Island, Illinois, working in a rubber boot factory. He flew out to Hollywood, and as soon as he walked in the door and opened his mouth and started talking, Corral and Gosden looked at each other and said, there's the kingfish. A thousand dollars. Now, don't let that fool you, Calhoun. A couple of years ago, there was a motion picture company making a picture in this era, and they wanted to use my property, and that's what they done. That's just the front of the house you're looking at. Oh, I see. Here's a picture of the back. <laughs> Kingfish, you ain't thinking about trying to sell that to somebody as a house, is you? No, Calhoun, I just figured on selling this country lot to somebody, and they can do whatever they want with it. Oh, well, now, the only person that would go up in the wilds of the country like that is somebody who wants to live like a hermit. You know, somebody that's uh, nervous living in the city and wants to get out in the country to relax. Hmm, yeah. Somebody that's nervous in the city. Calhoun, I think I'll go and have a talk with my old friend, Fidgety Brown. <laughs> and that's the plot of most TV sitcoms. The Kingfish starts a scam in which he tries to involve Andy, who almost falls for it, until Amos finds out and saves Andy, and everyone lives happily ever after. Of course, because he was such a conniver, and because he always lost in the end, the Kingfish became America's first villain you love to hate. By the way, that wasn't his name, it was his title. The Kingfish himself explains it best. Don't forget we are all brothers in that great fraternity, the Mystic Knights of the Sea. <laughs> An organization that came to assume a status almost as great as Amos and Andy themselves. Here's Freeman Gosden, Jr. The Mystic Knights of the Sea, as the symbol above the, let's call it an altar, was a mackerel. And that's where the expression holy mackerel came from. That was the holy emblem of the lodge, and they would use an expression. Holy mackerel there, Andy. I can't do that very well. Having settled on the actors, the network now had another problem. CBS needed to find a sponsor, and basically they found it in the first round because the pilot had previewed well. Blatt's Beer ended up being the sponsors of Amos and Andy, and they were just hotter than a pistol to get this thing. Everyone smelled that it was going to be a hit. You can also smell the hubris, which, of course, was a regular part of every Amos and Andy plot. I can hardly wait to get inside to see how the rest of the place looks. Now, wait a minute, Andy. We ain't got no time for that. Why not? Well, you know, Andy, you ain't the only fella that's interested in buying the place. I got another twitcher lined up that's going to drop by the lodge hole at 12 o'clock to put up a deposit check. Well, I can tell you now, Kingfish, it's a deal. Well, the pilot was broadcast in June of 1951 under the sponsorship of the Blatt's Brewing Company of Wisconsin. And it was quite successful. It received, it received good reviews. It was quite popular with viewers. It was quite popular with a significant share of the black audience. But unfortunately for CBS, they had chosen to premiere the program on the very night that the NAACP was opening its national convention. That's the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the group that, by the 1950s, had taken the lead in the civil rights movement. At the time, it was run by a man whose name was, ironically, Walter White. 
the NAACP had put black and white monitors on the floor of, of their national you know, convention and ran the pilot. And then after the show was off, got up and just absolutely tore this thing to pieces. Walter White put out this nine-point proclamation just saying not only how terrible this was and what a bad depiction of blacks was, but that it was it made women look like shrews, that all Negro lawyers were crooks and wackos and quacks, and that you know, uh, you know, blacks were criminals. And the truth is he was inaccurate because the pilot doesn't do that. The pilot is pretty funny, and it doesn't show the black community as a bad community at all. But, I mean, by this point... White had been kind of slapped down, and he was coming back with a lot of vigor, and he, boy, he was, he was on the warpath. Rich Carell puts up a good defense of the show, and it's certainly true that a lot of people enjoyed it. But Damon Fordham explains why the NAACP took a stand. It wasn't just a race thing. It was also a class thing. African Americans were beginning to make their push, a major push, should I add, into mainstream American society. And they, could, they felt that they could not do that and be taken seriously if the only portrayal of them that most people were familiar of were as comedians and buffoons. Now you see, Andy, first the atom splits into what they call the monocle. And then the monocle busts and breaks down into what they call neutron, photon, big newtons, and morons. In the ironic sense, you know, here we finally have African-American actors being hired to play roles that they felt many people felt they should have been playing all along. These were black characters. Why not hire black actors? Suddenly the nation is forced to confront it. Wait, you know, these are stereotype representations of black people. They are extreme, and we cannot quite reconcile that with this show that we've come to know and love. We didn't know that it was quite as prejudiced as it was. That was Michelle Hilmes. And for Elizabeth McLeod, what made Amos and Andy great had now been lost. The subtleties of Amos and Andy were completely gone at this point. The characterizations were completely turned into cartoons. This was especially notable in the case of Andy, whose layers were completely stripped away by this point, and he had become simply a, a bumbling stooge for the kingfish to push around. Despite continuing objections from the NAACP, the show was a reasonable rating success. The show got picked up. Now, what that means is they renewed it for a second season. And everyone was ecstatic, thinking, great, 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 great. This is so fabulous. You know, we're on the air and everything else. And there had been a protest at the Blatt's, actually at the brewing company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There had been a protest that got a little out of hand, where the NACP was down there. Some guys were blocking an entrance. Some truck drivers were kind of pissed off about that. People started throwing bottles. And, you know, there was, there was a semi-melee. A small one. It was kind of squelched quickly, but still, that got huge publicity. Hello, Andy. Ain't that beautiful? <laughs> well, what is it? Invisible glass. <laughs> Invisible. Ah! Oh, it's slipping. It's slipping. Uh oh, I'm gonna drop it. <laughs> But the Amos and Andy show never got a third season. Maybe it was the racial campaign. Maybe there was too much else to watch. Or maybe it just wasn't good enough anymore. After 78 episodes, CBS killed the show, although it lived on in reruns for years. Michelle Hilmes. Even though Amos and Andy was taken off the air in 1953 in the wake of the NAACP protest, 
it continued in syndication for years. And so in many places, people were still watching Amos and Andy in 1965, in 1972. I mean, it was still on the air. Unlike the radio serial and even the radio sitcom, which had achieved so much, the Amos and Andy television show did some real damage. As Rich Carell tells it, when a group of black actors and directors next tried to sell an original sitcom with black characters to television... The networks and the sponsors who were dealing with these black shows said, look, we can put a Western on, we can put on Gunsmoke, you know, we can put on uh, Boston Blackie, we can put on anything. It doesn't have this baggage. So who needs it? And the problem is that lasted almost 15 years, which was terrible for black performers. I was right about that land 20 years ago. They are going to develop it. And I got a chance to sell it to the suburban development company for $2,000. Matter of fact, Mr. Brokaw be out here this afternoon, and I'm going to close the deal. Well, if I was you, Kingfish, I wouldn't bother about waiting for Mr. Brokaw. And why not? Because I sent him over here in the first place. It wasn't till 1966 and I Spy that Bill Cosby got that first black leading role in a TV series. By then, Amos and Andy were long gone. By 1955, television's penetration had dramatically increased, and the radio audience had sharply diminished. And there really simply wasn't the audience to sustain the expense of these programs anymore. CBS had spent a lot of money for this property, and they were looking to make a big return on their investment. So CBS had this idea that they could take some of the most famous voices they had and turn them into disc jockeys if they could do it in a format where the guys could still tell jokes and play, and, you know, and play like they're in the fresh air taxi cab office and all that. So in 54, late 54, they started the Amos Nandy Music Hall which stayed on for another six years, which my dad would say, well, we were kind of glorified disc jockeys. And they would play records. And in between the records, there would be little pre-recorded bits of dialogue that they could uh, record in a couple of sessions each week. It didn't require a lot of work on their part. And it basically just coasted along in that format for six years. And then in 1960, it came to an end. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to shut up shop here at the music hall this evening. Yes, and ladies and gentlemen, we are looking forward to seeing you tomorrow night when our guests will be two of your favorite people, Mr. George Burns and Miss Gracie Allen. Good night, everybody. See you tomorrow night. They didn't go out on a high, yet Freeman Gosden and Charles Carell had plenty to be proud of. They practically invented a new form of radio, and at one time they'd held an entire nation in their spell. Amos and Andy Music Hall will be presented again tomorrow night at this same time. Our guests will be George Burns and Gracie Allen. Not a bad epitaph for two white guys who for more than 30 years were America's favorite black guys. Jeffrey Robinson presented The Real Amos and Andy, and the producer in Edinburgh was Dave Batchelor. Now with news of today's Call You and Yours, here's Peter White. HSBC, Lloyd's National Rail Inquiry is just the latest to transfer jobs from the UK to India, where it's argued they can be carried out far more cheaply and with no loss of quality to the consumers. It's also argued, in anticipation of the criticism, that the resources thus freed up can be used to improve services in Britain and create other jobs 
Do you buy this argument? And in any case, if we claim to be a free market, can we complain if free market rules apply globally rather than just domestically? Uh, on the other hand, call centre jobs were deliberately moved to high unemployment areas such as Glasgow, Liverpool and South Wales, which are now being hit 